All right, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, please. Matthew chapter 13, we have been hanging out together in the Gospel of Matthew, and I may be biased, but I have been encouraged (laughs) by God's Word uh, as we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, So we're just going to continue walking through it today. Matthew, starting with uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 53. We're going to read through chapter 14, verse 12. And if you need a Bible, um, you could just raise your hand, and one of our ushers in the back will will give you one. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Everybody got that? We good? Does anybody got that? All right, take your time. Matthew 13. Verse 53. Everybody say Matthew 13. Verse 53. All right, here we go. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? Is this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did did this man get these mighty, or get these things? And are not, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. Verse 57, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to your truth this morning. We ask that that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see Jesus Christ. May we experience him in our midst today through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the year 1402, a man named John Huss became disgusted with what was happening in the church. At this time, this is prior to the Reformation, and there was essentially one universal church known as the Roman Catholic Church. He was disgusted at the the various ways that the authorities abused their positions of authority as they would indulge in corruption. 
as they indulged in sexual immorality and even murderous schemes, power grabs, just simply trying to to take over and to have more and more authority and more and more power. Now, in addition to this, John Huss also began to believe through reading the scriptures that the Bible is our only authority, that this, what we have today, the scriptures is to be our one guide. This is where we are to go to for, for wisdom, and this is where we are to go for help, not the Pope. He also believed that everybody should have the Bible in their own language. Now, check this out. During this time period, the Bible was essentially locked in Latin. The only Bibles that were around were Latin Bibles. And the common people could not read it or understand it. And so this gave then the church authorities sole power to say, this is what God wants you to do. It doesn't even need to be in the Bible. We're just going to start making things up that, that, that pad our pockets and that make us comfortable in our own lifestyle as a, as a church leader. And we're just going to tell you what God, what God wants. And you can't even have the Bible in your own language because you can't understand it anyway. John Huss said, no, everybody should have the Bible in the language that they can understand so that they can read the Bible and understand what it means so that they they can be trained by the Bible so that they can know Jesus, so that they can obey Christ. Well, around the same time, the Pope, in a decision to try to expand his own power, the Pope began a crusade in, in, in Naples and in order to fund his crusade, which is like a, uh, for them, it was like a religious way of basically saying we're taking over territory, conquering. In order to fund his crusade, he began selling indulgences. Does anybody know what an indul- indulgence is? Indulgence, anybody? Right, thank you, Kay. So, so an indulgence, now remember, let's, let's remember the context, right? So the people at the time uh, are, uh, they, they, they can't read the scriptures, they don't know what it means to be saved, they don't know how to be forgiven of their sins, so they're living in constant fear. Spiritual damnation, that's all they think about. And so the Pope comes along, and he's going to prey on these people, and he says, hey, you can buy indulgences. If you buy this piece of paper, we're going to write your name down, and we're going to talk to God and we're going to guarantee you forgiveness of your sins. So just give us some money, and we'll give you this indulgence. But you can buy the forgiveness of sins. Now, Huss was outraged by this. And he began protesting this, and he, he was looking at the Scripture, and he saw, no, only God can forgive sins, and to try to make a profit of something that only God can do? Oh, this outraged John Huss. Well, as a result, the Pope excommunicated John Huss, kicked him out of the church. And Huss was commanded to come to a council, which was like a court hearing. At the council, the, 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 the Pope demanded, and the emperor they together demanded that John Huss recant all of his beliefs. Just turn away from this. Recant it. Well, he refused And as a result of his refusal, immediately he was condemned to be burned. They took him immediately, and they they tied him to a large pole. They bound his hands, and they bound his feet. 
And as the fires were lit underneath his feet, and as his body began to be burned, John Huss exclaimed these last words. He said, Lord Jesus, it is for thee I patiently endure this cruel death. And he was burned, and he died. Friends, what did John Huss mean, it is for thee? John Huss saw his death as something for Jesus. It's for you I'm burning right now. It's for you I'm feeling the pain. It's for you I'm dying this cruel death. I'm doing this for you. It's for thee I die this cruel death. John Huss knew something. He knew that he was following a Savior that has been rejected in this world. And John Huss knew that as a result of that rejection, that he very well may and is rejected by the same world. I want to talk to you this morning on this topic, following a rejected king. Everybody say it out. Following a rejected king. What kind of king are you following? A rejected king. We're following a king that didn't, that he, he wasn't elected. Nobody went to the voting booths and, and put their vote in and, and, and he was elected king. We're not following a king who campaigned in this world and said, I can do a better job. No, we're following a king who was rejected. We are following this morning a rejected king. Now, Matthew is a book about the king. Matthew is a book about the king and this kingdom. And Matthew says this kingdom is really here. It's a kingdom that is truly here. But, as we talked about last week, you can't see it. You can't say, oh, there it is. Oh, it's over there. Now, as a result of the fact that you can't see it, it's often a kingdom that is doubted, questioned, and ultimately rejected by many people. This has been the whole point of the parables that that Matthew's been telling us. All these different kinds of soil. He gives four different kinds of soil, three of which rejected Jesus. One out of four would accept him. It's a kingdom that you cannot see. And so therefore, it's a kingdom that's often rejected. Now what we see here are two parallel stories. Two parallel stories, one of Jesus being rejected himself, and then the next story is his forerunner, John the Baptist, having his head chopped off. Two parallel stories. It's almost as if Matthew is saying, look, rejection, like there's a lot of people that are going to reject the king. Here's why. And then let me just give you two stories. Two stories. I was talking to a a friend earlier this week. He's not a Christian. He asked me what I'm preaching on this Sunday, and I told him. And he was like, boy, that's that's going to be a uh, depressing sermon. Rejection, death, heads being chopped off, the end. Let's go. No, just kidding. Let me just tell you these stories really quick. Let me just summarize them for you. So the first story, we'll call it story number one. This is Jesus in his hometown. Jesus goes back to Nazareth where he was born, or not born, but where he was raised. This is his hometown, all right? We've already mentioned LeBron this morning, so I guess it's okay to mention him again, right? 
So as, as you all know, LeBron and I are from the home, same hometown, right? We share Akron. Actually, the way I put it is LeBron James is from Joel Kerr's hometown. You get that right, all right? And uh, when LeBron comes back to Akron, he's celebrated. As long as he's playing for Cleveland, but that's another story, all right? If he's in Miami, that's a different story. As long as LeBron is playing for Cleveland, when he comes back to Akron, he is celebrated. See, typically, the way it works is when you arrive at celeb status, you go back to your hometown, you're celebrated. Well, Jesus, in some ways, I mean, we could say he has arrived at celebrity status. Like, uh, sociologically, he's a celebrity. He's, he's well-known. Everybody is talking about this guy. He comes back to his hometown, and there is no celebration. Think about it. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, he comes back to his hometown. And look what happens. The scene starts off with him in the synagogue. He's teaching in the synagogue. And it says they're astonished. Now, John MacArthur explains that synagogue worship was notoriously boring. Like a very boring church service is how he explains it. And uh, it was so boring that rabbis who were terrible communicators typically, maybe you could think of like a college professor that was like a smart guy, but wow, it was hard to stay awake through, through his class. That's the, kind of the way the rabbis were, the teachers in the synagogue. And so what they would do to kind of spice things up is the rabbi would whisper their message to a communicator, and the communicator was dynamic, and the communicator would try to wake everybody up with what the rabbi is trying to tell them. And so the rabbi would often just communicate through this guy. And even the communication would be like, it would just be various, you know, Rabbi so-and-so believes this, and Rabbi Rabbi so-and-so understands this. Just endless speculations on the scriptures. Now, Jesus comes and something's different. Jesus comes, and the Bible says he speaks with authority. He spoke in a way that was captivating. He spoke in a way that was like, he's not just listening to what everybody else says and coming with speculation. Jesus is speaking as, as someone who, who knows this stuff. Well, he wrote it. So he communicates it better than any of us. And so they're like literally astonished as they listen to him. That word means amazed. They're just, they're dumbfounded. This is, this is amazing. I've never seen a teacher like this. And so then they question, like, okay, we know this guy. <laughs> we know him. I remember when he was a boy. We know his dad. He's a carpenter. We know his mom, his brother and sisters. Like, we know it. This is where the tension rises. And then they reject him as a result of that. Jesus, the story ends with Jesus Leaving, And Jesus says in verse 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. This is a fulfillment text. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy spoken of him of old. Now, as we get into the next story, there's sort of this turning point where Herod uh, questions this Jesus. Who is Jesus? And Herod's freaking out because he thinks it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Why is Herod freaking out? It's because Herod killed John the Baptist. And he's afraid John the Baptist is back to haunt him. And so he's freaking out about this, and now the rest of the story is told in like a flashback. And we learn about how John the Baptist died. What, what was it? Well, in order, in order to understand the story, you've got to understand the characters. All right, this is like amazing stuff here. Like soap opera kind of stuff. 
All right, some of you are thinking soap opera equals amazing. Anyway, so let me tell you the char little character development. Uh, everybody say Herod. So Herod, this is not, by the way, the Herod that was in power when Jesus was born. That's his dad, Herod the Great. He was the big ruler over all of the area. He dies after Jesus' birth, and he divides the kingdom into four different sections and gives sons uh, a, a uh, section to rule. So this is sort of this playboy, like rich kid's son, Herod, Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch just simply means a ruler. He's a, he's a ruler of this one section, and he likes to think of himself as a big shot, all right? That's important to know. Now, there's another son of Herod the Great. His name's Philip, all right? This Herod uh, is brothers with Philip. So this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, we'll call him Antipas, Herod Antipas goes to Rome to visit his brother Philip. Now, when he's in Rome, while he's there, Herod sees Philip's wife. Her name's Herodias. Not only do they practically share a name, well, he finds her drop-dead gorgeous. And so he's just stunned with Philip's wife, and he seduces her. Herodias evidently likes it. She receives it. Now, Herodias, let's talk about Herodias a little bit. She's also a very, very wicked woman. Herodias wants to be a queen, and her husband, Philip, is not a king. And so she's all for this adulterous affair. And so Herodias then agrees, I'll leave Philip and you leave your wife and let's, let's do this. So they hop in bed with each other and they both move, both move in, king, queen, Herod, and Herodias. Now, check this out. Here's the tension in the story. John the Baptist has been speaking out against this. He's been saying, this ain't right. You see it in verse, verse 5, I think it is. This ain't right. Verse 4. And so as a result, uh, Herodias talks Herod into arresting John, bringing him in. Now John is in jail. Now Herod is a weak dude. He doesn't want to do anything that upsets anybody. So he's trying to please his wife, but he's also trying to please the people. And you know how that goes. You end up pleasing nobody, right? So now we get to the scene where John the Baptist is locked up and, uh, and Herod is having a birthday party. Herod's birthday parties were notorious. Notorious. His birthday parties would be male invites only. All these men would come. They would eat a lot. They would drink a lot. They would get drunk. And then at that moment, they would have all these women come out who would dance these sensual dances and then it would end up being this big, crazy... You know what I'm talking about. You got me. I don't have to say it. Kids in the room. So, uh, so that, 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 that moment comes, and Herodias comes up with his wicked strategy. She sends in her 12-year-old daughter, whose name is Salome, to perform this sensual dance. And the text says that, that uh, it... She, she, uh, she pleased Herod. And I think we all know what that means. And as a result, in his drunken stupor, he agrees to put the head of John the Baptist onto a platter to give to this young daughter. 
He's not going to let down his people that are watching. You've got to do it now. You just said you would give her the head of John the Baptist. And so he sends word into the dungeon, and he has John's head cut off. That's the story that we're looking at today. Those are our story. Rejection. Rejection. Now, there is this theme that's tying these stories together, and that is this. That is that Jesus is the truth. He sits down in the synagogue and he tells the truth about his own identity and about who God is, about the Word of God, and he is, as a result, rejected. John the Baptist tells the truth, and as a result, his head is lopped off. What was his crime? He was telling the truth. What we see here is this. This theme is is that uh, the, the truth, while it sets many free, will also get many killed because many will reject this truth. Let's just break this down. We're going we're gonna to try to move fairly quickly here. Why is it that the hometown, why is it that, that Herod reject Jesus Christ and his prophet? Why is that? Let's explore that. I want to explore that under two headings. Number one, first heading, they reject him with irrelevant excuses. Irrelevant excuses. Excuses meaning these are the reasons they're giving as to why they're rejecting him. Irrelevant meaning they're unrelated to anything. Like that has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. That has nothing to do with the truth of God. Like you're just making stuff up. Let me just, can I use LeBron one more time as an example? You don't mind? You don't mind over here? Okay. So let me just use him one more time. So let's say LeBron does uh, come back to Akron. He's going to play some pickup ball. And he's, you know, they, they seem to do these great accomplishments. He's a great athlete, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so he, he gets out onto the court, and everybody sees him playing. They're like, what in the world? Like, like we knew this guy. We knew him when he was in diapers. We know his mom. Like, his mom's not all that tall. How did he get so big? And they start asking all these questions, and then they kick him off the court. Well, you're freaking us out, man. Get out of here. Like, that sounds, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And it is ridiculous. And that's what I'm trying to say is happening here. Like, this is just ridiculous. They, listen, they have seen his mighty works. The amazing thing about Jesus, and one thing that just affirms his own deity, is that his own enemies believed and affirmed his mighty works. They didn't deny that he was doing some crazy stuff. They didn't deny that he was an astonishing teacher. His own enemies said, this guy's amazing. But we can't deal with him. And so they come up with these irrelevant excuses as to why they can't deal with him. They start asking these questions in verse 55. Isn't his mother Mary? Or at first they say, isn't his dad a carpenter? Like a regular old dude building houses, kind of blue-collar work. Isn't his mother Mary? Which, by the way, some people today believe that Mary was sinless. This actually shows you that she wasn't. Like, there wasn't anything special about Mary. She was a godly woman. 
for sure. But just ordinary. Don't we know his brothers? James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Don't we know his sisters? He's got a common family. He comes from ordinary people just like us. He comes from Nazareth. Now, friends, let's just pause for a moment. Let's be honest. Those are, that's a, those are fine questions to ask, and it's like a fine aha to have. Like, wow, this dude comes from common people. But what's ridiculous is to completely then dismiss his great works and his great teaching as a result. They're bringing stuff up, good questions to ask, but it's unrelated. It's irrelevant. Yeah, these are, these are smoke screens. You're just, trying to, you're just trying to debate for the sake of debating. You just don't want to believe Jesus. And people do this today, don't they? Oh, Jesus never existed. He never existed. Well, even secular historians would disagree with you, right? Well, the Bible was rewritten so many times, hundreds of times. The Bible's changed. The Bible's rewritten, and we can't even trust what we have today. Now, listen, there's a, there's a whole study called textual criticism where you could just do a little bit of research and learn that what we have today is, is solid. It's trustworthy. These are just excuses that people just bring up. They don't want to take the time to actually do the history. They don't want to take the time to do the research. They don't want to actually explore because they're afraid as to what the answer will be. They're afraid that the answer will come back affirmative, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord of all. Man, I hear them all the time, all of these irrelevant excuses. Well, I want to know what happened before the Bible. I want to know what those religions were. Well, you can find that out. It's not a secret. Nobody's covering it up. Or Christianity is a white man's religion. Listen, there wasn't a white person in the Christian faith for the first 300 years of, it, of its existence. The faith was started by what we would call today in America minorities. No, we just don't want to deal with the truth. We don't want to deal with the fact that Jesus Christ might as well be the Lord, the Messiah, God. Christians do this as well. Christians love to try to explain away Jesus' own words, his own teaching. Well, if you look at the culture and if you kind of turn the page just the right way, you don't have to actually believe that. Oh, Jesus is clear. But we come up with these irrelevant excuses as to why we should not trust him and believe his word. Or kids do this. Kids in the room. I'm just a kid. I'll deal with that later. I'll worry about Jesus later. I'm just a kid. That's for my parents. That's not for me. No, irrelevant excuses. It's built into our DNA. Friends, what kind of questions are you asking that are just irrelevant? What kind of questions are you asking that are just simply smoke screens? You just don't want to actually deal with the fact that you need to repent and turn to Jesus. Listen, friends, seekers, true seekers, wonderful. I'm meeting with a guy weekly right now who is just asking question after question after question, trying to understand if, this, if the faith is true, and his questions are genuine. He's looking for answers, and he, when he finds an answer, he clings to it as an answer. 
I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the smokescreen stuff. I'm talking about the people who don't actually want an answer. I just want to keep asking questions. Now, why do they do this? Why the irrelevant excuses? Well, this goes to our second heading. The, 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 what I'm calling the irrefutable issue. The irrefutable issue. What is the real issue at hand? There was just an article published that I read uh, where uh, someone asked the pastor, Tim Keller, if he could identify some of the major obstacles in our culture today which are keeping us from spiritual renewal. And Tim Keller's answer shocked the guy that asked the question. Basically, Tim Keller's answer said was sex. The issue in our culture today that's keeping us from spiritual renewal, it's that everybody just wants to have sex with each other. He says the vast majority of everybody in society is having sex with each other, and a lot of people in the church are having sex with, sex with, with each other. And then he, he talked about another pastor who he was friends with. And he said every year kids would come home from college and they'd be struggling with their faith and asking, you know, doubting God and doubting the scriptures. And this pastor would say, he would ask this question, he would say, who are you sleeping with? And every time they would say, how did you know? You see, the issue is this. It's not primarily a lack of evidence. It's a love for sin. That's our issue. It's a love for sin. It's not even, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing the intellectual questions. I love having intellectual conversations about the faith. But often what it comes down to is not just simply an intellectual dilemma. But it's a love for sin. I told you before, R.C. Sproul one time, he, he addressed a whole room full of atheists. And he told them, he says, your problem is, is not intellectual, it's moral. And they looked at him like, what are you talking about? And he continued, he said, he said, it's not that you don't believe God exists, but you hate God. That's the problem. He wasn't invited back, needless to say. <laughs> but you see the point here? The issue is, is not a lack of evidence in Jesus. Like we've seen his mighty works. We've witnessed his astonishing, powerful, amazing teaching. Like it's, un, it's undeniable. He is God. He is the Christ, and we've got to trust every bit of his word. The issue is that we love our sin. That's why we reject him. I mean, look at this Herod situation. Well, first we see in his hometown, he took offense. That word offense literally means a stumbling block that moves. So Jesus' hometown saw Jesus as a stumbling block for what they want to do. I'm going this way, and Jesus is getting in my way. He's getting in my path. He is the stumbling block. He is the rock of offense. And John, all right, John, who speaks the truth to Herod, is rejected. Listen, friends, if you are going to speak truth, you must understand and be ready to have your head lopped off. Like, as soon as you start talking about... So let me back up. Here's the issue. 
Here's the problem here. People worship themselves. And as a result of self-worship, we then love sin. We want to do what we want to do. Now you try addressing sin. Oh, you're messing with somebody's, somebody's precious little baby. Don't talk about my pornography. Don't talk about my adultery. Don't talk about my love affairs. Don't talk about my singleness. Don't talk about my marriage. Don't talk about my racism. Don't begin to address these issues in my life, or you better be prepared to have your head chopped off. Maybe not literally. But you speak the truth, and often, friends, rejection comes. Now, the great irony here, listen, is that John the Baptist is, is calling Herod to repentance. John the Baptist is simply doing what he's done his entire ministry. Out of love for people, out of love for wandering souls, he's calling them back. He's saying, turn from your sin, repent, trust in Christ. He's seeking his salvation, and Herod now kills the only person in his house who is seeking his salvation. You see, the, the, the religious folks, they say, look, life has no fun in it. Don't do all of these things. You just have to live a miserable life. The irreligious folks, they say, look, life is short. Do whatever you want to do. Do what pleases you. Listen, the kingdom of heaven the gospel of Jesus Christ says that, that uh, the fun of sin is just an illusion. And friends, those of you who have lived a sinful lifestyle, please say amen right now. It is an illusion. It's not a good life. You see, what, what John's going for, for Herod here is, is not Herod's misery. He's going for the best life for Herod. He's calling Herod to live a life the way that he was meant to live, a life of happiness, a life of joy in the Lord. The difference, friends, between the church and the world, at least what should be the difference between the church and the world, is that we understand that when we talk about sin, we're not, we're not getting on to each other. And we're not talking about people's identity anymore. And we're not talking about like not having fun or not having joy in your life. Like, I, I've heard so many people say, like, I know I shouldn't get divorced, but God wants me to be happy, right? And when we, when we begin having some of these tough questions, what we're talking about is really, truly the best life, a life of godliness. Now, as a result of their rejection, let's just close with this. As a result of their rejection, I want you to see the outcome. In verse 58, Jesus stops his mighty works and he leaves. As a result of their unbelief, as a result of their rejection of Jesus Christ, they lose their only hope who was raised in their midst. They knew him as a child and they rejected him and it says he did not do many mighty works there. He left. And as a result of John, or Herod killing John, Herod killed the one person who cared for his soul. Two stories, two parallel stories. One, 
the rock of offense, Jesus Christ, rejected in his hometown by his own people. And the other, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a prophet, a forerunner of Jesus Christ, and a model for what it looks like to follow after Christ. A model for what it looks like to speak the truth of God and be rejected with the rejected king. Jesus is the rejected king. Jesus was rejected in the world, not because he was a sinner, but Jesus was rejected in the world because he took on flesh, he took on the form of the servant so that he could be the Lamb of God who takes away all the sins of the world. He came as the suffering servant. We're going to sing this song, this old hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus, friends, was rejected for you. When Jesus was ultimately rejected, they put him on the cross and he died for your penalty for sin. Three days later, however, God raised him from the dead. He ascended to be with God and he was accepted as the King of Heaven rejected on earth, accepted as the king of heaven. And friends, the king of heaven is coming to earth. And the earth will not stop him. And the king of heaven will renew all things. Listen, friends, this rejected king is still inviting people into his kingdom. I wonder if you're a citizen. I wonder if you're a citizen of this kingdom. This king, this rejected king is inviting you this morning. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Cling to him. Cherish him above all things. Be rejected with him. It is for thee I die. It is For thee, I am reviled. It is for thee I am despised. It is for thee I am rejected. He was rejected for me. Oh, I, I will stand with him. And I will gladly be rejected with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gift of the scriptures. We thank you in particular for the gospel of Matthew and the King Jesus, the one who, who we have experienced and seen and set our affections on today. God, we ask that as we live in this world, which is often a world of rejection for us, we ask that you would help us to stand with Jesus, to stand with him, to be rejected with him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.